You, you are now listening to the Project Kuwait. To the Project Kuwait. To the Project Kuwait. Where we stop at nothing to bring you the right facts on health, fitness, and psychology. Featuring some of the world's most experienced professional professionals. So you can learn, lift, and live with your hosts, Meg, Dr. D, and Mandy. So sport is a training ground for psychology because you get kids that want to do it. So if it's not acknowledged, it's a failure for sport as a whole. And so that's kind of my mission, so to speak, is to get more coaching of this to young athletes. For your point, because when you leave sport, which everyone is going to do, your ability to squat counts for nothing. Your ability to hit a baseball counts for nothing. But your ability to be confident and go into a presentation or a sales pitch and to visualize it going well and talk yourself into it counts for a lot. All this and more in today's episode. <laughs> Fake British accent, Meg, you're on. <laughs> we are joined today by Adam Dehati. <laughs> he is the author of In the Zone, Eight Ways to Build an Invincible CrossFit Mindset. He's here to talk to us too about the state of flow and how we can find that and tap into it a little bit more easily than uh, what we maybe think. So Adam, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, it was odd that you reached out because it was, I wrote that article three years ago and kind of left it in the black hole that is the internet. And then you guys kind of picked it up. And I actually said to my friends when you first reached out, I thought, wow, is this like Picasso? You know, he writes, he does some art. And then after he's gone, it, it gets picked up again as something good. Um, <laughs> I was still alive to get the call. So it was, uh, it was amazing. Really Great timing it. then. <laughs> yeah, it was good timing. Yeah, I brought it back from the dead. So, no, I appreciate it. And I'm happy to talk about it, about the zone. I'm super passionate about it. I always have been in psychology, but I'm actually from the UK and I grew up just wanting to be a rugby player. So I got my dream actually, and I became a professional rugby player in the UK for, I was about six years professionally. Um, but I went up through all the age groups. So you have, you know, Looking back, it seems odd, but at the age of 15, when you're getting the train down across the country to go to a trial, I felt so growing up. But looking back, I thought, wow, what was I doing at 15? Did I not have anything else to get on with? <laughs> but I did it. And uh, you play age group uh, things, which is amazing, singing your national anthem, etc. And uh, so I, I was kind of baptized by sport at an early age. And as I kind of grew older, I really did pick a correlation between whether I played well or not was dependent on my mindset. And then there was a mismatch in that I was like, well, I'm so sure that whether I play well or not is dependent on my mindset. Yet I find it really hard to get access to coaching on my mindset. So if I wanted anything technical or tactical or anything around fitness, it was available for sure. Interestingly, the fitness side of it is completely looking back wrong. But at the time, they had their own approach to it, and it was available to a, to a young mm-hmm. athlete. What was odd was that there was zero when it came to psychology, zero. So I actually went on this voyage of my own, and I thought, right, well, if I'm going to go to university, there's one thing I want to study, and that's psychology. There wasn't a sports psychology undergrad or bachelor's around where I was playing rugby, but there was a psychology one. But then there was a master's in sport and exercise psychology. So I had this sort of long-term route of, well, if I get that psychology undergrad, it gives me a good foundation. And then I can jump into the master's and do sports psychology, which is what I really wanted to do. So it wasn't really with the intention of, I want to be a sports psychologist. It was the real motivation was, I want to understand this more because I've experienced it. And I believe that it's a gap 
Right. How So at the age of 15, that's when you decided that you wanted to tap more into like, that, that yeah. just blows my so, mind. Because at that time, at age 15, I think about my swimming career too. And it's like, and it is, it's, you just think it's all technical. It's technique. I've got to practice more. I got <laughs> more yards. I got that kind of a mindset. So that's really like enlightened for a 15 year old, I think. To, yeah. I know. Well, I thought it was a bit odd, but I, at a very young age, people are in touch with psychology. They just don't really know how to label it or say that, you know, before I was 15, playing football, for example, you would go out with all your friends into the field and you wouldn't be yourself. You would pick a pro athlete that you wanted to represent. So you'd go, hey, I'm going to, this will be nothing to you guys, I'm going to guess. But you'd say like, hey, I'm going to be Alan Shearer. And you'd pick pick someone else to be. And I think to some extent, that's a skill that you have as a young athlete to go, I need to believe in myself and improve my ability. So instead of a quick fix to that is to be someone else. And that's a quick fix to me to to get more belief now because I need it now. So I think to some extent, everyone uses skills and mental training at a very, very young age. They just don't, they're not aware of what they're doing. Yeah, that's um, really interesting. No, it makes sense. I mean, me and my buddies were playing baseball, basketball and whatever. And even at a very young age, I remember it would be like, find the zone. You know, you'd say, find the zone as a hitter, get in the hitter zone. And it's just, it. back then, I didn't know what the hell we were talking about. You know, we didn't know what was going on. We were just trying to hit dingers all day or home runs in baseball. So... I mean, it's interesting that you found that, at, like Meg said, at such a young age. When did you turn away from sport and go more into the academic side? You're a professional rugby player. So when did that switch flip and say, okay, let me start getting into the academia side of it? I wouldn't say it was a, I would, if we go to the analogy of the light switch, I would say it was more of a dimmer than a flip. I kind of transitioned over time and kind of turned the volume down on sport and turned it up on sports psychology over probably four or five years, I would say, transition out. So I was studying whilst playing rugby to looking back to the detriment of my rugby career. I was missing training sessions because I wanted to study. So I think that kind of shows that it was an equal aspiration for me to learn about sports psychology as it was to be a professional rugby player. I wasn't consciously thinking then I want to be a sports psychologist. It was just, oh, I really want to go to this lecture, but I've got rugby training. I've already trained twice this week. I'll go to my lecture, sir. It was a very gradual process, more that not, it wasn't a quick, right, I'm going to stop the sport now and I'm going to now study psychology. But what was actually interesting was when I did stop sport, I actually went into strength and conditioning. So I was actually in Hong Kong and I did a lot of, at the time, I was in Hong Kong for five years and I you know, worked in CrossFit as a coach in a CrossFit box in Hong Kong. And then I went into strength and conditioning, working with actually the Hong Kong baseball team, the Hong Kong cricket the Hong Kong rowing team, the Hong Kong golfers. I was dabbling in sport and strength and conditioning, but I was always kind of wearing the glasses, looking through the lenses of, of psychology all the time whenever I was doing it. It wasn't until I moved back to the UK that I said, right, sports psychology, let's go for it. And I feel when I started to do it, the wave wasn't as, as big as it is right now. I think it's getting bigger and bigger and more of an interest. But I think um, at the time when I was looking into it more. CrossFit was the one area where I felt is more open to sports psychology than, than say rugby was. What makes you feel that way? I think CrossFit in general is more open to marginal gains. I think they appreciate how competitive it is. And if they can get an edge in any way, they're open to it. Okay. Um, whereas I think other sports, particularly rugby, is a kind of, let's not address that. Let's it's more, um, there's a risk to opening that Pandora's box. Let's just keep it shut. 
and we'll open it if we have to. Right. So okay. Maybe that's just because there's a longer culture and a history yeah. to rugby, whereas CrossFit is kind of just a fresh culture and a fresh way of looking at things. And fortunately, it's an open one. And yeah. like, hey, let's just address everything and see if it works. Um, maybe that's the difference. But yeah, that's just my answer that I've just made up in the last 60 seconds. Since <laughs> <laughs> it makes sense, though. No, it Time to think about yeah, it. Yeah, Even exactly. psychology is a relatively new field. I think that's like really only been studied. Like, I think it's like 150 years. I had heard that psychology really has been uh, probably less than that. Maybe like yeah. So it's like, like sports psychology. I imagine is even less well, than actually. There's a nice little uh, point that sports psych the first sports psychology institution was mm-hmm. in Berlin 100 years ago. So oh, amazing! It's, it's okay. having its hundred year anniversary. But yeah, psychology itself, it doesn't have a huge history. Then it's to my point about young athletes. I think we were always doing psychology to an extent. It's just we we only labeled it in a certain way. And uh, interestingly with psychology itself, it's, it's been heavily focused on the removal of ill health, not the promotion of health. So as short as a history as it has, the majority of that history has been focused, focused on the clinical side of it as like, let's remove ill health. And it's the, the idea of positive psychology and let's stop talking about removing ill health. Let's start talking about promoting health. Yeah. That's very new. Preventative. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, preventative. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, there's a really good, if you're interested, Martin Seligman is a really good psychologist. He was the president of the American Psychological Association and as a clinical psychologist, and he kind of had a revelation of, hey, why are we trying to remove ill health? The problem with that is, where only the only audience we have is people with ill health. Like, right. Why can't we be more inclusive? And it's not really a huge motivation to get to zero. Like mm-hmm. we want to say, like, hey, you can be in a positive state. Let's just focus on that. So that's. I mean, he's still knocking around, so it's not that old at all. The idea yeah. of that. So yeah. Uh, but I'm just to, just as a kind of note, like my whole education really is sports psychology, and I think you know I don't really want to dabble into clinical psychology it's not really my interest or field Uh, i do heavily focus on sport and exercise psychology for sure it's amazing how messed up are baseball players just out of curiosity (laughs) i I think i think i'm going to bring a little history in for you guys i think the first advertisement for a sports psychologist was in the movie major league where charlie sheen was laying on a couch throwing a baseball up (laughs) talking to a shrink so (laughs) i want to say baseball paved the way for sports psychology <laughs> in the 1990s, Charlie Sheen. Did. I know Great. of all people, Charlie Sheen had to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good history. Yeah, I'll have to check that scene out for sure. <laughs> yeah, but I appreciate you uh, calling up that but that thing. So, just to give a bit more context as well, I guess the my the passion behind writing these that article originally was the psychology more than CrossFit. Mm-hmm. So, I know you kind of want to focus on a range of sports. So that's kind of good because I kind of focus on more the sports psychology end than the CrossFit end. But I know that article itself was written in the context of CrossFit. I do kind of apply it to across all sports, really. All right, I'll take the floor, Meg. (laughs) So, I mean, I'm going to dive right into it real quick. In Kuwait, we have a term saying finding the dark place or getting into that dark zone in CrossFit. I don't know if that runs across the board or if that's a Kuwaiti thing. 
But that what, was what was told to me before I got rhabdo, actually, <laughs> was go to the dark the place dark in this place. workout. <laughs> so can and you, I did. But that's why you got rhabdo. <laughs> so can you describe the dark place, so to speak, and what differentiates the dark place for me as a normal CrossFitter, I guess, so to speak, and Matthew Fraser, where people try to imitate him? I would probably say, first of all, it's the first time I've heard of, of people say, Let, like, like, you've got to really go dark here. And I'm guessing that means you've got to push yourself to the point that you might pass out. Dig deep. Yeah. So yeah. It's like, dig deep, go, even if it means you faint or you pass out, like, just go, dig deep. I guess my initial reaction to that is it's an individual preference. And Matt Fraser require going that deep. I think it, it's a different level. It's very each to your own what that means for a start, but also your ability to go dark. I think it's very, very an individual phrase, but as a kind of cue. So if a coach was to say, well, okay, this is a cue that I'm going to use as a general cue across the whole class, it would mean a different thing to everyone. I would argue that if it, from a psychological point of view, beneficial, I would argue that it may not be a benefit. I used to always kind of think never go above 80% and make you 80% better. Partly because I think once you go over a certain threshold of arousal, your skill ability decreases a lot. So your psychological activity and your physiological activity is your arousal level. And the higher you go doesn't mean better performance. It's not correlated. It's more of a U-shape, I'd say. So for example, if and different skills require different levels. So if I use the analogy to try to explain this a bit better, if you kind of say, if you picture a, a volume on a speaker, if we say zero is your kind of Zen monk in a field, completely calm, almost to sleep, and 10 is William Wallace running into battle, <laughs> each skill that's required to perform it well requires a different level. So it's your zone of optimal functioning, right? So a deadlift, for example, a one max rep deadlift, you could probably get away with going up to nine, and that would be correlated with a good performance. I'd argue if you hit 10, there's a chance that technique goes out the window, and technique is important even for a deadlift. If you look at a skill like handstand walking, you probably want to be at a two or three to perform that skill well, because it's a high motor skill, and it's very much technique involved as opposed to energy involved. And then your ability to move that dial at request is super important. So to kind of come back to your question, going dark, if, I, if it's, it means just push yourself as hard as possible, argue that that's not a beneficial cue depending on the skill and the workout. If you mean going dark as stop listening to what you're saying to yourself, I think that's beneficial to people who maybe have poor self-talk. So mm. if someone's not, doesn't really... You know, if they, oh, I'm never going to win. What's the point in this? Or I'm terrible at deadlifts and I hate handstand walks. Going dark might be beneficial to say, stop talking to yourself and just move. Then it could be beneficial in that light. So I'm going to, at the risk of rambling on and not answering your question, I'll stop. Uh, no, I think that totally answers yeah, it. And I like yeah. the flip on, on using that of going dark, of like quieting out all that negative self-talk. So I think maybe what... Maddie, maybe if that like is going dark, it's not the same as being like what you would call in the zone. So what do you identify as in the zone or what is the zone? Yeah, the zone for me is something that people talk about retrospectively, typically. So, you know, you very often hear because I was totally in the zone and people acknowledge that as a real thing. So guys will say, 
guys in the zone, oh, we, no one goes, that doesn't exist. People just believe you if you say it. But it's also retrospective. But you very rarely have people say, warming up for a session, you'll, you'll see people warming up, doing all sorts of exercises to prepare. They'll take their pre-workout, but you hardly ever see people sitting there going, I'm getting in the zone this workout. Mm. You very rarely see people do that. And I think partly is because they don't know how. Like no one's ever told them. But what does happen is people will acknowledge it as a real thing retrospectively when it happened to have had occurred. And you go, oh, wow, I think I was in the zone there. That was awesome. There's lots of characteristics of what the zone is. So there's a Hungarian psychologist called Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, I believe. He studied and originally he was looking into happiness. So what makes people happy? And um, he found this state, which he called flow. Mm-hmm. And the state of flow is where you, you know, everything stops and you, you're, you know, so there's, there's common characteristics of being in flow. And that is, you're not conscious of your thinking. Everything's just happening in a kind of just a, an innate instinctive manner. You're not really thinking anything. The other, another big factor of it is the time alters. So if you kind of think of the opposite of being in flow, so bored at school, for example, time goes really slow. So those last two minutes, you're looking at the clock five times and it hasn't even been 10 seconds. And if someone asks you a question, you panic. So there's this sort of distortion of time in that you go, wow, I feel rushed in everything I'm having to do, yet a minute is taking ages. Time is not moving, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so that's the opposite. When you're in flow, it's the other way around. Yeah. In flow, an hour, you go, wow, was that an hour? Like that flew by, but you felt you had all the time in the world, which comes on to the next characteristic. You tend to feel like you're in control. Yeah. You have this sense of, I'm in control here. And part of being in control, another characteristic is that you have instant feedback. You know what that feedback means. So if you're going into something which you've never, if it's your first time doing a sport and you literally don't know the rules, the chances of you hitting flow is very slow because you don't know if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. There's this sort of hesitation of, I don't really know is this how to hit a ball or is this how to do a thruster? I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to get into flow unless you know the rules and you get instant feedback to yourself. So coaches can help give feedback and learning, but it's when you know you can give your own feedback and you know that what you're doing is moving you towards your goal. That's another characteristic of being in flow. So I would kind of use flow and the zone interchangeably. It's, I would almost say it's exactly the same thing that we're looking for. Okay. No, it makes sense. I was just going to throw this back to using like hitting a baseball. Two weeks ago, I was in a game. It was a 3-1 count. Maggie probably know what a 3-1 count is. So there were three balls, one strike, two guys on base. I knew he was going to groove me a fastball. And I hit an absolute bomb. Walked in. Someone goes, you know, what happened there? I was like, dude, I'm in the zone, man. You know, like the ball just slowed down. Like it just slowed down. So kind of exactly what you're saying happened to me two weeks ago. And it felt like time just stopped and the ball was on a tee and I just coasted. So it's, but it's finding it is the hard part, you know, unless you're a pro athlete, I'm assuming. Yeah, that's a really interesting point there that you've just said, because you kind of, you've almost uh, described what I was going to say next before I've said it. The, one of the things that, um, in terms of flow, one of the research things that we have control of, they call it the CS balance, which is your challenge skill balancing. And it's basically saying flow is in, if you picture a kind of a graph, the y-axis, you'll have your challenge and the the perceived ability to meet the challenges on the x-axis. 
there's a kind of channel along the middle of that, which is where you hit flow. And you need to balance the challenge with your perceived skill. Mm-hmm. Um, typically, if the challenge is too low and your perceived ability to meet the challenge is too high, you typically have a state of boredom or yeah, I'm not really that interested. If you flip the other way around and that the challenge is really high and your perceived ability to meet that challenge is really low, typically you fall into a state of anxiety. So you can kind of play around with the challenge to the skill. So in your example that you just gave there, that first ball, you weren't being challenged enough. You hit a bomb. The second ball, that graph changed and all of a sudden the challenge became higher and that let you enter flow. That's interesting. So your ability to, to change challenges. And um, so and it comes a lot because typically with sports psychology, when we're looking at sport, you can't change the challenge. So you can't change the workout. You can't change your opposition. You can't change the time of day. You can't change how long you have to prep when you arrive at the arena or, or and that's for any sport. So what you have to be able to manipulate is your perceived ability to meet the challenge. And that's kind of the field where sports psychology can kind of look at. And because changing the challenge is very difficult, unless you're on the other side of the scale. So say you're training at the gym and the workout looks quite easy and you see that you're right. Well, now I'm in a state of boredom. I'm a bit really, is this all we're going to do? You can change the challenge. So even if the workout was the typical way you see this is the increasing weight. So in CrossFit, you can say, let's just pump the weight up. But in baseball, I don't know, you might say, okay, I've got a, I'm skating on thin ice here with baseball, but you, you, <laughs> you can use soccer, man. You can use any sport you want. It's all good. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm determined. I'm determined to get through baseball here. But you might, okay, to make it really simple, you might go and play against a bunch of guys who are, are not the same level as you, maybe kids. Okay, and you might yeah. say, right, well, if I'm doing this for an hour with these kids, there's a chance that I'm going to get bored. But what I'm going to do is instead of using my dominant hand, I'm going to flip and use my mm-hmm. other hand. So it becomes a little bit more interesting for me. So you hit so lefty instead of, of righty. Yeah, or I'm going to flip the bat upside down. I'm going to do something different. And what that does is it moves you a little bit more towards flow because you've gone, right, well, I'm bored. So if I move the challenge up for me personally, it's going to make me a bit more interested. And that moves you away from boredom into a bit more towards flow. So that challenge skill balancing is a real kind of good lever that we have to try to manipulate and, and increase the chances of hitting flow. The first kind of point of it is when you get told a situation, quickly do a check-in and say, right, how do I feel about this? Am I anxious or am I bored about the idea? And that gives you an indication of I need to increase the challenge or I need to start working on my perceived ability to meet it. I really like that little yeah, mental graph that you can build with that because I think there's some times where I've kind of confused, am I in a flow state or am I just on autopilot <laughs> You know, with this? Is it something where... And I think autopilot falls more into that boredom category, maybe even though the time kind of fly by in that, but it, I don't know, it's kind of a fine line. I think we, we kind of play games with ourselves as well, because if I use, I'm going to flip to another school example, because I think it resonates with a lot of people in that, say you've got an exam, okay, you could, and the exam's two months away, you might sit there and go, oh, I can't be bothered to work. I'm bored. I'm, I can't be bothered. And then as you get closer, you start to feel a bit anxious and then you get closer a bit more anxious. And then you go, right. And then you just hit this sort of state where you just do loads of revision. And it's, mm-hmm. for some people, it's the night before or two nights yeah. before the exam. But I think what happens is unconsciously, when you said you're kind of, so it's probably, 
ah, I've got too long to prepare for this. I'm just going to wait for a bit to because till it naturally, because of time, becomes more of a challenge for me. Right. You know, so you're like, oh, I'll let time take control of this. And when it gets closer and I have to panic a little, then I'll hit the zone and then it'll <laughs> kick a gear in me. Um, that makes sense. Yeah. But I think we play a lot of sort of games with ourselves, again, that we're not aware of. And I think I'd love to have more awareness and more research behind it. Um, but I think we're always playing with our own psychology in, in some way without without knowing it. Yeah, absolutely. So what are, I guess, okay, so that's like kind of a little mental skill that you help to get people to recognize the zone or, or you know, mm-hmm. where it kind of falls for them. What are some other, I guess, like, how do you coach someone in this like mentality or what is like the process I suppose of of helping someone find it besides yeah. like just looking at the challenge and the and the skill yeah there, you mentioned self-talk before I didn't know if there was anything like with that or if I'm gonna kind of look at all the athletes or teams that I've worked with it's spe- specifically psychology the, the guys who I've worked with more typically what I'm trying to do is a lot of the time trying to convince them not to think more than think something so a lot of the time they they're not doing themselves any favors with the way they are thinking. That's a lot of the time. It's not all of it, but a lot of the time it's almost try not to think, try to get into the zone or, or to switch off and not, you know, trust your instincts, just go with it and not think too much. But I kind of describe it a lot of the times as a dartboard. So if you kind of picture the center of a dartboard, um, you have, you can throw a dart and land anywhere in that dartboard as your, as your sort of state of mind. And if we say flow is really elusive and it's that middle, it's the bullseye in the middle, okay? That's really hard to hit on the size of a dartboard. But what you can try to do is get in that, I forget the name of it, but the green circle outside of the bullseye. That's mm-hmm. a bit easier to hit. It's a mm-hmm. bit of a bigger target. So what I typically try to say is, if you find yourself in that kind of black area around the dartboard, try to get to the green. Because if you get to the green area, there's more chance you're closer to a state of flow. And the sort of tools that I use to get people into that green zone are of a bullseye is talk. So what you're saying to yourself, imagery, what you're picturing yourself doing, your ability to manipulate your arousal. So that volume control I was talking about before, knowing what state you're in, depending on the skill you have to perform. And goal setting, setting okay. goals, which reverts back to that challenge. Have mm-hmm. you got a good challenge or do you need to decrease the challenge in some way? So those are the four main sort of mental skills that I, I use. And let me just say that the, the reason why I use those four is because those are the ones that are studied in psychology. So there's a lot of kind of anecdotal theories out there about sports psychology, um, which are fine and placebos a thing. And people, if it works for you, it works for you. Awesome. But the things that are, have a bit of research behind them typically are self-talk, imagery, goal setting, and arousal regulation. Yeah. So the visualization one, for sure. That was a big one. I know in high school swimming, we were exposed to that. And at the beginning, we were all like, oh, great. It's a chance to nap. He wants us to like <laughs> lay down and you know visualize stuff. We're yeah, like, great. It's just nap time before we get in the pool and practice. But it really did start to to transform and take on a huge difference in how we approach practices that day. And then definitely being able to tap into that when it came time for the big competitions, the big races. You know, swimming is a little different. It's like an individualized sport, but you also have like what you do individually contributes to the team. And so I mm-hmm. found that visualization, yeah, just to be so impactful, something that I carried all the way through college. Um, yeah, visualization is really important. Because when you look at studies that have shown, you know, if you're trying to get someone to learn a skill like throwing a ball at, or, or whatever and t- 
teach people visualization and then you have a control where you're not teaching them visualization and they have time off from the skill. Typically, you find the guys that have been mentally rehearsing it mm-hmm. can perform better than the guys that haven't. And what's interesting with that is that we say, well, if you visualize performing a skill, your motor patterns develop, they get conditioned, you can be better at it. But what's, when you look into it, it's really interesting about when you make mistakes. So if you apply the same logic, if you make a mistake in sport and then you, you, know, you drive home all your thinking of how you made that mistake, that means you're conditioning that mistake. It's more likely to happen again. So in the flip reverse side of it is that, yes, imagery helps you practice a skill without doing the skill. But also, if you're not aware of your visualization, you're also sometimes using the same skill, but in the wrong way. Right, dwelling on something. Yeah, Yeah. So your ability to say, well, I've just made a mistake. And your ability to, in your head, go, okay, that's what I did wrong. How should it have gone? And then start repping out the visualization of it, how it should have gone, mm-hmm. is what elite athletes typically tend to do, as opposed to rehearsing that mistake again and again. Because if that situation was to arise again, and you've repped out the mistake, what's the first thing that's going to come into your mind? That right. mistake might happen again, as right. opposed to, okay, that situation comes up. If you've repped out the, the corrected or the right way to perform it, that's probably going to come to your mind first. So again, visualization is something that everyone does. It's just whether they're using it for themselves or against themselves. Right. Yeah. It's fascinating. Well, thanks, man. Now I know where my snatches suck. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, well, I mean, that's the interesting thing. So you can kind of think if every rep counts, so to speak, if there's something that you kind of makes you, or you don't think that you're proficient in, if you compare the reps of you thinking, oh, well, it's going to go rubbish. or oh, it's going to be terrible. Oh, what's I hate doing this. And oh, yeah, I made a mistake again and rep that out compared to the reps that you've done well, of course, improvement's not going to happen quickly because just a number of reps, you're doing thousands of reps because you don't have to warm up for a visualized rep. You can do thousands of reps wrong. And then if you can do 15 reps at training, but who cares? You, if it, after you leave training, you start repping them out wrong again, almost motor pathway-wise, what was the point? Right. The muscles might have developed, but the motor pathways aren't getting any help. No, yeah. it, it total makes, disconnect between the mind and muscle. Yeah, yeah. Make, sure. it oh. ma- exactly. makes sense. I mean, when I had kids that were afraid of a baseball hitting ground balls, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with it. You know, a ground ball is scary because it's coming at you hard, can knock your teeth out. So kids would always have that fear. What I would do is I'd have them close, hit soft, back them up further, 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 kind of get them used to that muscle memory of just visualizing the ball into their glove and trusting their hands and. I mean, what you're saying applies to friggin' every sport out there. And I like, I wish I knew this 10 years ago. <laughs> you know? like, it would have made Even goes difference. outside of the sport. I think just in life, like, you know, how often do we just dwell on something that we did? We wish we would have done a different way. And then the next day, public speaking or something along those lines, it's like, Sure. You can rep it out in your mind of all the mistakes that you made and you go back into that situation. You just have that fear building up of doing it again rather than how could I have yeah. excelled? Yeah. And that's a really good point that what you've just said because currently with sport, it's an interesting ground because it, you know it's getting attached to sort of people in competitive situations that get you know mental health problems and things like this. And I kind of see that not as the way to treat that isn't in my mind to get more clinical psychologists into sport. It's to get more awareness of mental skills when they're younger. So mm-hmm. I think it's a tragedy if 
if there's a if there's a young athlete who's passionate about sport and all they want to do is play sport and see how high they can get, I think if it's a tragedy if they leave that sport, which they're inevitably going to do, mm-hmm. if they leave that sport knowing how to get fit, knowing how to bench press, knowing how to squat, knowing how to hit a baseball, but don't know how to think positively, that's okay. a failure for sport. Totally. So sport is a training ground for psychology because you get kids that want to do it. So if it's not acknowledged, it's a failure for sport as a whole. And so that's kind of my mission, I so to speak, is to get more coaching of this to young athletes for your point. Because when you leave sport, which everyone is going to do, your ability to squat counts for nothing. Your ability to hit a baseball counts for nothing. But your ability to be confident and go into a presentation or a sales pitch and to visualize it going well and talk yourself into it counts for a lot. And that sport's a great training ground because you get lots of challenges. You know, you get lots of failure constantly, unconsequential failure, I guess, and you get exposed to it. But it's a shame if you're getting exposed to it and not getting some training, some extra conditioning out of it. Yeah, I 100% agree on that. And I think that's one of the things we've talked about before with athletics and kids in Kuwait. It's a lot of focus gets put on academics and school and they'll sacrifice playtime and you know, maybe even some sport time and stuff for, for that to take, take over. And that's something that it's, I think they forget that training and the sport environment definitely can, it can train you for time management, having to balance like practice and school and other things. I think just working with others, whether it's an individual sport or a team sport, uh, that coaching, yeah, the mental toughness. I think there's so many parallels from the sport world. I think that have definitely helped me out in a professional sense outside of the sport itself. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a, as I said, like an inconsequential way to put kids through failure. Yeah. It's like how, if you were starting again and you said, how, like kids need to learn failure and how to cope with it. Mm-hmm. How can we create that, that we can expose kids to failure every single day? You would probably come back around to creating sport again. Sport, yeah. Like let's so just how, do some, you know, how do, I was going to say, where do you fall on the, uh, like the participation ribbon? I was <laughs> so going to ask that. You read my mind. I was going like, to say this. And that's a big thing, thing here where it's like, now there's like, nobody wants competition. They want all the kids to win and have fun. And I guess like, where do you kind of lie on that of like, every kid should walk away with a, a trophy and the participation ribbon <laughs> kind of award for just participating? I think giving someone some reward for be- the behavior of doing sport is good. So if, if you get 20 kids that do uh, sport and you, I would never say don't congratulate them for their efforts. Right. Reinforce, say, hey guys, that was a good thing that you just did. You did sport. So the idea of rewarding participation, I completely support. The idea of not then challenging them and saying, yes, well done for doing it, but also going to have a competition and someone's going to be rewarded more, mm-hmm. I think should also be still there. Of course, you should, you should reward kids for doing sport. I would never say don't reward participation. I'd never say that. But I also think that you're losing something about sport if you don't start picking a winner and a loser as well. Like obviously, yeah, rewarding that. Yeah, get out there and try, at least trying new things. Of course, wanting everybody to have fun. But uh, yeah, with the complete removal of exactly that challenge, a skill, feeling successful at something is... Because I think yeah. that can be missing. I think it's a shame to take it away from sport. Yeah. It's a real shame. And it, it goes against that kind of notion of, of creating anti-fragile of kids. Mm-hmm. So kids that can withstand stuff. Like I kind of believe in don't treat kids like a China cup. You know, yeah. don't try to, <laughs> what do they say? It's uh, prepare, uh, prepare the child for the road, not the road for the child. Yeah, like, I like you, that. you can well, never yeah, put everything in, out the way. 
you've got to prepare your child for whatever comes. And I think sport is an opportunity for young children to get exposed to things like that. And it's about preparing them for the road. Uh, you can't always make sure that they never experience failure. It's, yeah. it's ultimately, a, I think, a bad thing. But I would, but in terms of the participation ribbon, I'd, I'd love to give everyone a ribbon <laughs> for participating. I mean, no offense, I'm against that. I think trophies are earned, not given. I grew up in that era of trophies were earned, not given. Eat nails, piss vinegar, get back on the field. If your arm's hanging off, sew it back on and just play the rest of the game. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the mentality of the, the coaches that I had. But that bred a, a quality of leadership that I developed from that and being the underdog, so to speak. Like if I'm ahead in the game, I do worse. But if I'm behind and I know I don't have a chance at winning, I actually do a lot better as an underdog. Why? I don't know. It's a mental thing with me and it's always worked. So haven't tried to fix it. But, you know, back to the kids thing. I mean, my son, if he ever comes to me with a participation trophy, I'm going to be like, dude, you didn't earn that. You know, every kid got that. What are you going to bring me that's different? That's the push that I'm going to give my boy. And it's the approach of, Kids need to learn that there's winners, there's losers. Not everybody's a winner. And when you go into the job field, not everyone's going to get the job. You know, you got to deal with that early so that you know how to take it later on, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I completely agree. I was kind of going for a more layered approach of having both. We're using the word participation ribbon. But in other ways, it could play out. It could be make sure you high five every kid for turning up. You know, yeah. just rewarding them for turning up, I think, Reward them for turning up, yeah, but also have that other layer of, okay, but for those guys who want to win, you're going to get a medal if you win. So that's what I kind of meant with the, the participation ribbon is just some sort of positive conditioning, even if that's a high five. Good on you right. for turning up. I know you hated it. I know you didn't want to be here, but good on you. Yeah. Um, and I also find it interesting that schools, that they would never do that for academia. They would never be like, right, we're all going to have a maths exam, but <laughs> whatever you get, you're all going to get an A. Yeah, exactly. Like, so why why do we do it for sport? Sport, yeah. Like sport, no, everyone get. We still have scoring for maths and science and English, and yeah. so uh, why shouldn't sport have that? Um, obviously, we're all super biased, and someone would have a different point of view. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. that's how I feel. Yeah, so no, I, I agree. We're all in agreement. Yeah. No, I agree. With goal setting, I know there's a lot of different ways to approach that. I guess what is your preferred method for setting goals or helping someone like understand the steps to getting to their goal? Or how do you kind of break down that big goal maybe that they're going after? Yeah, I'm mixed with goal setting because it can kind of... I get mixed feelings with it because it can be a lot of work and get more complicated than it needs to be. Mm -hmm. But then some people love it. Some people love like a target. Typically, if someone was loving it and said like, give me some goals, give me as many as possible, typically I would start with like the bigger goals. So saying, what does this do for you? So why do you play baseball? Because I love hitting the ball. Why do you love hitting the ball? Because if I hit the ball, it means we're, we're going to win. Why do you want to win? It typically comes back to, okay, so baseball makes you feel good. It's mm -hmm. something positive for you. It's in your life. And yeah, yeah, okay, great. So I'd start off with this higher acknowledgement that this is something that makes you feel good. So it's more than the sport. It's bigger than the sport. Yeah. Then I would typically go down and say, right, well, let's pick, a, let's pick an outcome that you want. Well, we want to win the league this season. Awesome. Okay, so that's the goal that we're going to have. How are we going to win the league this season? We need to win all our games. So then you have this outcome goal, and then you start quickly go down into your performance goals. So this is kind of like your key performance indicators. So you'll say like, okay, 
one of our assumptions that if these indicators go up, is more likelihood that we will hit our outcome goal. And if we hit our outcome goal, we hit our big goal of we all feel good. So we have these KPIs after that. And that's usually done with the coach more so than with, with myself. Um, so at the top, what I typically work is that higher end of why are you doing this? Why is this important to you? And as you get closer down and down and down, you get into more of the nitty gritty of coaching. So then you'll have, say, if you go, well, I want to be able to squat. If I squat more, I will have more power in my legs, which means I'll be able to hit the baseball further as an assumption. So if I increase that, my, that's an assumption that if my leg power goes up, I'll be able to hit the ball more. Then you'll say, okay, well, in that case, let's hit a goal for that. Let's say you're going to hit 100 kilogram squat in six months. Then you go a deep further down to that, and then you get to your process goals. So yeah. that's just your day to day. I'm going to have, what are your process goals? These tend to be really repetitive, mm-hmm. but they're super important. Yeah. So there's no sort of joy in them. It's just get your eight hours sleep, get your nutrition right, get your training right, do your warm up, and the most important one, journal your mindset each day. So you put all of these in and it's part of your process and that just happens daily. And then you have, I guess to answer your question, you have layers from Mm -hmm. the outcome of why am I doing it and why is this more important than the sport? And then all the way down. I think to keep it in the sort of realm of psychology and not to, because you can quickly go into sort of S and C when you go goal setting and sort of, well, should you squat, split squats once a week or should you keep doing back squats? (laughs) To, to keep it on that upper sort of psychology end, I, the reason why I think it's important to attach to the reason I'm doing this is greater than, than the sport is because when everything you think of is about winning and performance, then if you, for whatever reason, you can't play that sport anymore, that's the end. Right. You've lost that link. So you should always connect everything back to why do I do this? Mm-hmm. Because it makes me feel good. So you've always got more lines to follow. Why do I speak to friends? Because it makes me feel good. Why do I get in touch with my family? Because it makes me feel good. Why do I go to the cinema? Because it makes me feel good. Right. So it's just another line of things that make you feel feel good. So you're not like everything is sport. Yeah. So I think it's important to, to acknowledge that at the beginning. It's the same approach for um, people who come with like a weight loss goal. Like, oh, I want to lose 10 pounds. And that's the exact same game. It's like, okay, why? And it always comes down to it's confidence. Yeah, you sure. know, it's, it always, it's comes, always comes down to confidence because it makes me feel good because I want to feel good doing this. Or, you know, sometimes it's like the kids and, you know, the family and a bit and a bigger reason like that. But attaching it to something like that definitely does a lot more for the motivation. And then it does a lot more for breaking down those skills of what's the day to day look like of what's actually going to motivate you to get to that. Yeah, example. for sure. Yeah. Completely yeah. agree. And then on the flip side, so when I said goal setting, so that was the kind of path of someone that wants a plan. <laughs> You know, right. the guy who's like, give me every single goal. I need a goal today. I need to know what I'm going to be in five years. Yeah. But then there's also people that kind of get frustrated with it. And I kind of have empathy for those guys as well, because uh, goals typically create tunnel vision. Mm-hmm. So you miss other opportunities in your life. So if you're like so focused on your uh, sporting goal, you could be missing lots of other opportunities in your life, you know, to go into a different career, to have met a new partner when you're younger, or there's so many different things that you can miss because you have this tunnel vision. Absolutely. Um, also, goal setting sometimes leads to unethical behavior. So if you're so adamant on your goal and you've got someone checking in on you, it can lead to lying and saying, yeah, I did it when you didn't. Mm. And which ultimately leads to a bad behavior. Like I'm going to lie just to say I did it. Or, hey, did you do the workout today? Yeah, I did. I did. You know, And just because you can't not hit your goal. Right. So it can lead it can lead to some sort of unethical behavior as well. So I'm kind of mixed with goal setting. I think it is important 
it's a very it, it comes back to the individual ultimately yeah whether it's good for them or not good insight i like that like you said in a group situation i mean what like you said that blanket statement of going to the dark place like that's going to mean something different to everybody and it's yeah. the same exact thing with the goal setting of how they're going to approach that it's kind of the same argument that we have with calorie counting maddie thinks that it can be <laughs> beneficial for some people and i'm like it can be absolutely detrimental to other it's people true. If you, if, look if you're ocd or whatever like yeah it could be detrimental if you're if you go crazy with it but at the end of the day i say I count calories and I think some people should if you have a healthy relationship with food to know how far you're going with it. Like I know I overeat sometimes, but I don't know how much I'm overeating or overindulging and overconsuming. And calorie counting sort of, you know, it it tightens it up a little bit. Like it keeps me within that smart realm rather than overindulging in things that I shouldn't be overindulging in. And Connecting it to how I feel when I overindulge in calories and I overeat, I feel like shit. And I'm not talking like I look in the mirror and I'm like, oh, I've gained a couple pounds. I don't give a crap. I could care less how I look, but how I perform in the gym, how I feel getting up out of bed, how I feel walking around, it makes a huge difference. Like when I eat like shit and when I eat clean, I feel so much better. It's related to so many other things. You know, the whole gut mind thing, Meg. There you go. <laughs> yeah. I think, again, it's, it's super individual. But one thing that I'll kind of support your point there is how it comes back to psychology. And that um, a lot of the times where you, you can kind of, let's say that you're not in flow and you're very conscious of your thinking. Sometimes your, your thinking can kind of split into two, right? So you have someone supporting you and someone going like near the shoulder going like, no, 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 you're not going to do it. And you have this conflict in your dialogue. The way I kind of explain that a lot of the time is that you, imagine you've got two of yourself in court and they're, they're speaking to the judge and they, you've got to present your case and the judge is going to support whoever has the best case. If you're not doing your nutrition, you're not getting your recovery, you're not doing your training or you're cheating on your reps and training and things like that. When it comes down to it and it comes down to performance, the judge not going to take your case. So I think things like calorie counting is a great way that when it comes down to it, when you say, hey, do I feel good about myself? You've got a good case to go to Mm -hmm. court with. You can say, yep, I'm doing my nutrition right. I'm recovering right. And it tends to tip the scales towards feeling positive and having optimism and belief. Uh, whereas the person who kind of just doesn't do it is more susceptible to it. <laughs> don't need to worry about the nutrition. Don't do any training and just go for it. So they're yeah, the kind of blessed guys. Are they the blessed guys or they're the guys that don't? They're not very cerebral. Some people can say <laughs> stupid. But not very cerebral thinkers. They're just kind of blessed by ignorance, right? And just go for it. And sometimes they happen to be absolute freaks and can outperform everyone. But yeah. that's fine. So yeah, self-talks. Yeah, I think, as I kind of said earlier on, lots of, we play a lot of games with ourselves and I think it goes way deeper than we're consciously aware of yeah. why we do things. And I don't think we can really explain why we do things. We can say what we think why we do them, but I don't think we can truly understand why we do things. But I think it's a Pandora's box that's worth opening to have a really? look and try to understand it more, for sure, and not just leave it. So, sorry, go ahead, Meg. I was just going to say, so... For this type of work now, like, are you, so this, I know this article was written like three years ago. So (laughs) are we still writing or are you teaching in front of like a classroom setting? Are you working mainly like how, I guess, can people 
follow yeah. maybe some of the work and the insight that you've developed just over your broad experience. Yeah, I actually, I, I continue working with sports psychology with sort of local teams. I actually started to work with the Netherlands rugby team. So just here, they have a rugby side. So I went into them and dabbled with a few individuals as well. And uh, But actually, I put all of my, my passion into a digital platform. So the side that I had was, you might have came across in the last hour that I'm really passionate about getting psychology out there to younger athletes. So in order to do that, there's only so much that one can travel and, you know, that comes with a budget. And I kind of went to scale with this. We're creating an online platform now that allows people and the the lever that we're pulling is self-talk. So your dialogue that you use with yourself to try to condition people to think more positively. We're developing that now and we're actually planning by end of next month for sure to actually have some sort of beta testing on that. The, um, The way that it works well, the concept is that you would write a minimum of 100 words a day at the beginning of your day. And those 100 words will be scored depending on the sentiment of what you've put, the words that you've put, how long it took you to do it. You know, so sort of scoring of it. So you can get some sort of feedback, gamify sort of dialogue once a day. I like that, yeah. The idea is that you, you do it once a day. And the idea is that the more positive you do and the more daily you do it, the better mindset you'll have. That's called get ahead mindset. It's like getaheadmindset.com. If you went to it right now, it would look, it probably wouldn't be too impressed because it's, we've kind of diverged into a new platform and a new idea, which we haven't launched yet. But that's kind of what I've focused on more now than as an individual consultant working one on one or with groups. I tend to work more on this, this platform. I love it. Does it give you like a, a theme or a topic or something to write about with those 100 words, or it's just whatever is kind of at the top of your mind? Is it like yes. free writing or? Yeah, typically it, it's not really a topic. The, the idea is ultimately to, to have a blank page. Mm-hmm. So it's, you start each day with a blank page and it's up to you to fill it. But if that's something that you haven't done regularly, you can kind of spend a lot of time looking there and before you know it, you're back on Instagram. Yeah, so right. <laughs> the idea is to start off with some sort of training to say like, hey, out of your 100 words, make some of them like instructional. So write some instructions about what you want to do today. Make some of them motivational. So this is why I want to do this today. Make some of them sort of affirmations. This is why I believe I can do this today. And then something gratitude, like this is why I appreciate getting the opportunity to do this today. So as a kind of structure for people to follow. And I think that resonates with different people. So for some people, they're super instructional. Some people feel better with gratitude. Some people feel better with motivation. And each to their own, really, again, individual. So that's why I like to go back to the blank page so you can make it your own. But for guys who are just like, whoa, I need some guidance here, then we'll look to have that. And the idea is to score it as well. So having an algorithm in the back end that actually says, yeah, you're being more positive. Yeah. Um, So we're looking to to launch that. So I miss the kind of the one-to-one or the group setting for sure. But I think this is quite a good way to scale it and get it to more people quickly. Um, Absolutely. I definitely have felt the best and the most productive when I had started my days off writing. That's something I'm... Mm -hmm kind of getting back into now. I don't know why I really got away from it. But yeah, starting off the first thing in the morning before you open up the phone, before you open up the emails and the computer or anything mm-hmm. else, just getting what's up here. Before I listen to a podcast, anything. Like I can't absorb any more information until I've already kind of brain dumped <laughs> everything. Yeah, that's sure. top. I yeah. find it similar to like when you make your bed, right? So yeah. you get up in the morning and you make your bed. And I think there's a few reasons why that's, that's a nice thing to do because it sets your intention for the day that you're going to have order. And also you get that reward when you come home and you, every time you go back to your room, you're like, yeah, 
Good. It's good. In, a way. <laughs> I think it's a similar, yeah. in a similar kind of way, every morning you should uh, like make your head, so to speak. So exactly. you put it in order. One, that means that every time you look at it again, it's in order. So you have some sort of structure and it looks right. Yeah. But also it sets your intention for the day that you're going to have order in your day. It's not going to be chaos. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think there's a lot of benefits to doing it. And there, there's a lot of options out there now as well that do this as a, as a daily journaling. It's, it's getting quite big, but I think I'm specifically focusing on athletes and sport and the benefit for your sport more so than your just general life. So right. You're going to notice that journaling is going to impact your sport. Yeah. Um, and it's I think great that's... for coaches. Yeah. 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 It's fun, fun, funny you mentioned that because my coach has me on a true coach and on Monday, it's my weekly check-in and he asked me a bunch of questions about mindset basically kind of like journaling the whole previous week it actually it did wonders for me to be honest with you because i i kept hitting this block of i'm not moving forward i'm not moving forward and then he was like well look at what you wrote you know look at what you you said on this week and in this week so it's kind of cool that you're actually bringing that to in a simpler sense so to speak like something a little bit better, I would say, better, more structured than my coach just saying, hey, dude, what happened? <laughs> you know, yeah. so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah for like sure. That. And I think it's, it's interesting with psychology as well, like just as a kind of example of, of how fleeting it is. A lot of times when I've worked in the past with individual athletes, you know, it'll be a Saturday night and they'll reach out to me and they'll say, hey, Adam, can we speak on Tuesday? Have you got time on Tuesday? And I'll say, yeah, yeah I've got time on Tuesday. Cool. And then when it comes to Tuesday morning, they'll go like, oh, can we uh, put back that? Can we cancel that? Uh, I've, I've got something else on. And what's frustrating about that is between Saturday night, Sunday, Monday, they've, they've figured it out mm-hmm. but, and they've gone through it. And that's good ultimately because they have their own process, but it's missed that opportunity of what was wrong on Saturday. What were you wanting to talk about on Saturday? Did you go to your usual process or is there room for improvement? Could, so maybe on Saturday night, you had something that you wanted to get off your chest. But by Tuesday, you've dealt with it yourself. But maybe it took two days. Maybe it was on Monday when you came to terms with it. How can we get that down to by 10 minutes later, you're better? Right. So you can take yeah. advantage of Sunday. Because it comes across the whole recovery point. You know, you go, oh, well, you need to have a day off. A day off physically can be lying around, chilling, eating, getting your nutrition. But a day off psychologically is very difficult if you've had a bad game. Yeah. That's not a day off. How do you actually switch off and recover psychologically? There's a lot of athletes that I don't think, they never have that re- mental recovery because they're constantly replaying a mistake or what they're going to do. And to be able to just go switch off, recover, don't think about sport. In general, I mean, even with work, you know, I mean, let's talk about that recovery. You know, we have the weekend, we have two days off from work and that's supposed to be our recovery, our days off. But how many people really take a day off and they just switch off from work or from whatever it is? And I'm guilty of it too. Like I still check my emails every once in a while and I'm in touch with the, you know, my guys that are in the department and everything. And, and there are days where I go to the gym and it's just like, wow, I recovered yesterday, but I still feel like shit. I still feel like crap. I'm not performing to my highest. And a lot of it comes down to stress. You know, we just don't, like you said, we don't switch off. So what are some keys that we can do on those recovery days to kind of switch off? Like what are some tips and tricks you can give athletes specifically or even average Joe that goes to work and then goes to the gym and doesn't know why he's having a bad day on the treadmill? I'll answer the the question that you asked there. Some like tips and tricks is that um, I think the the most important tip is just 
in terms of the, the psychological side of it is just to be aware. So first of all, acknowledge that it's a day off. First of all, a lot of guys will not acknowledge that they're having a day off and they'll kind of just let it happen. Uh, so take control and acknowledge this is a day off for me thinking about work or sport. Or And then the second step is that awareness of, okay, I'm not thinking. So it comes back down to the kind of the mindfulness side of things and, and being mindful of what you're thinking about and the ability to stop it. I'd say before you go into anything else, the, fir- the biggest and most important tip is be aware of what you're thinking. Yeah. And is it working for me or is it not? But then on the second side of it is if you look at any elite athlete that's performing on a Saturday, any elite athlete in the world, regardless of the sport, and they say, if you're performing Saturday afternoon, what do you do Friday, Friday night? They'll typically say, you know, I, I relax, I have a day off. They're typically not competing the night before. Right. The reason why that is, is because of the contrast. So there's this association that in order to perform at your best, you need to have off time. So there's this, uh, that is essentially recovery, right? So you have off time. So that means that when you're on, you're better. And there's a kind of a balance to that, but there's this contrast. And arguably, I don't think we have that contrast with psychology. We're never really on, but we're never really off. So there's this sort of argument of in order to be on psychologically, you need to have off time, but also you need to know what on is. Mm-hmm. So when we kind of bring it back to the beginning of the conversation, we all know what on is because we've experienced flow or being in the zone. But maybe sometimes the reason to get on is actually to have more time off. You know, I I don't want to get into a sort of philosophical (laughs) uh, conversation here and we lose the realm of of science. But yeah, I I think there's an argument of that we're constantly simmering at a middle ground with psychology. Mm -hmm. And if we put a little bit more time into knowing that like a light switch, when I need to be on, I know exactly what I need to do. I need to work on my self-talk. I need to visualize positively. I need to look at my goals. I need to get them in the right state for what skill I'm about to perform. Then you start to know what on is. When you know what on is and you know how to get there, you'll trust yourself to be off more. Off, yeah. I think that's the thing is the panic of being off, like it's going to set you behind. You're going to... I used to have that, yeah, that fear as well. You know, a day off is, oh my gosh, I need to catch up then. You know, I'm so much farther behind everybody else. And yeah. Yeah, yeah, when you can understand where to tap into it to be on. Yeah, you yeah. let go of that time. <laughs> we used to like travel quite a lot with sport when we were, we were younger. And typically, you know, you would... And I didn't think of it at the time, but we'd have like a two-hour coach journey to get to the ground or mm-hmm. sometimes an eight-hour, probably bigger in the US, but, you know, a long time. And, you know, the coach would say, hey, you're 10 minutes into this four-hour journey and they would put on Rocky. And they'd say, let's put on Rocky to get the guys up for it. And you'd watch it. And then on the bus, you'd be like, yeah, awesome, Rocky. Yeah, I'm, I'm up for this game. And then you'd start thinking about the game and how much you're up for the game. Yeah. And my analogy for that is, that's the equivalent of being on a, on a home game. Say there was no traveling at Evolve. And your strength and conditioning coach going, all right, guys, I want you there six hours before kickoff. You're going to running around the pitch. Right. I want you running around that. the pitch for six hours and yeah. then we're going to warm up. It's like, yeah. what? Yeah. Let them be off. It comes back yeah. to that, you know, in, you look at the S&C side of it. We know how to warm up. We know how to be efficient. We appreciate the need for recovery beforehand. Whereas psychology, we don't, a lot of guys don't know how to do the warm up. And because yeah. they don't have doubt in that, they just, they're constantly simmering on and yeah. they never know off because they don't know how to go on. Yeah. I don't know if I've just explained that well. Or, no, it's, it makes yeah. perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you got me like rethinking my whole day now. <laughs> you got me <laughs> rethinking my whole life, dude. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> yeah. no, I'm great. like, I've been doing it wrong great. since day one. 
getting pumped up four hours before a game always you know, worked <laughs> against me. Now I know why. <laughs> now I know yeah. why when I didn't give a shit, just walked on the field, like I performed my best. <laughs> so it actually makes a lot the of sense. sense. Yeah. Actually, I, that's an interesting point because I used to have this rough sort of feeling and it was really odd, but I used to sometimes think it's odd that when I'm going into a game with a bit of a niggle, so I've got like a slightly tweaked calf or my back's a bit off, sometimes I play better in those games. And I used to go, why is that That's so odd? But then it makes sense in that those games I was going in just thinking about that injury and I wasn't, with the games when I don't have the injury, my mind's open to think about more stuff, including anxiety, what can go wrong. Whereas those games when I'm just focused, yes, I'm focused on something negative, but it's a very small thing that I'm thinking about. Right. Sometimes I used to think, like, maybe the reason those games I seem to play well is because in the preparation for it, I wasn't, I was focusing on just one thing as opposed to all the things that could go wrong. Yeah. So again, an example of how you, I think we're always playing around with our psychology, and uh, but we're not aware of what we're doing. But yeah. I also say, you know, it's uh, something to check in in and not constantly evaluate every thought that you ever have. Yeah. Have designated times. That's why I think coaching is really important so that you designate time. So you can say, you know, right, we're going to have an hour where we're going to sit in and we're going to think, we're going to discuss what we were thinking about this week. And you can reflect and plan for the next week because if you don't designate time for it, you will just kind of half-heartedly do it all the time anyway. Yeah. So the importance of saying, this is my training time for my mindset, that allows you to evaluate, plan, think about what you're doing process. And then when you're outside of training, switch off. Absolutely. Do you have a podcast, Adam? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like I would listen to this. I know, yeah, <laughs> like I know, little right? bits, like just like a little five minute pick me up for the day or just something to like focus on. I think maybe yeah. that's something, something you no, add I, to your I, goal I, list. Unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately don't. I, I couldn't do it. Dude, we, we'd <laughs> love, we'd definitely love to have you back on here. Like a hundred percent, man. I mean, yeah, it's been good. very enlightening. We also have Tuesday show with uh, Dr. Dinka. She's a psychologist. Because psychology is like, it's not talked about in Kuwait. It's kind of taboo, I would say. So, and we are the podcast of taboo shit in Kuwait, apparently. <laughs> so, so, I mean, we, 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 we do that and it would be cool to have you on there. And I mean, she would have jumped onto this, but she has no sports background, like zero. And I told her, I was like, yeah, me and Meg are going to geek out a little bit on sports. So... <laughs> Oh, that's a shame. I would have loved to. Yeah. Because I mean, as I said, my expertise and my sort of reference is always sport. But I think there's a lot, you know, psychology is such a big field and it, it goes deep. And uh, those sort of clinical psychologists are trained with the real deep stuff. So it's, uh, it's interesting to, for me to always speak to those guys and to kind of learn from them. So I thought it's good that you have that podcast. I think I bet it's super interesting. I'll have to check them out. Awesome. Right, awesome, man. Well, to wrap things up, we usually kind of do like a rapid fire thing with rapid fire questions. You know, it's kind of, kind of yeah, yeah. So like the, a would you rather kind of a situation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you ready for these? All right. So where would you rather live? The moon or the ocean? Would you rather drive a car or a bus and why? A car because it's more agile. Okay. Eat fish or meat for the rest of your life? Oh. Are you a vegetarian? <laughs> please, I, thank God. I was going to say, please don't tell me you're, you're, you fell into the game changer thing. <laughs> I'm not, no. All right. All right. Be a monk or a politician? A uh, monk. Oh, okay. That's a good one. <laughs> Be stuck on an island or a mountain? Mountain. All right. Here, here's a good one. Play curling 
or badminton? <laughs> uh, badminton. Yeah. Be a race car driver or a marathon runner? Oh, race car driver. <laughs> All right. Spend one hour with Sigmund Freud or Howard Stern. If you know who Howard uh, Stern is. Yeah, I know. Actually, yeah, right. it would have to be Freud. It would have to be Freud. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Oh, I'd so yeah. pick Howard Stern. Yeah. He's got Freud beat. <laughs> Either yeah. one's a psychology experiment. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Good ones, Maddie. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah. Nice. That was easy. <laughs> the marathon runner one I thought was going to like tear you for a second. Have you ever run yeah. a marathon before? I have actually. I did have one you? recently. Yeah, my oh, first amazing. Course. Which was great fun. Yeah. My goal was just to finish with a smile on my face. And I did yeah. it. So amazing. I was, happy. was the smile there? <laughs> no, 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 it was, yeah. It uh, was, yeah. Don't ask me my time, but I yeah. finished with a smile. <laughs> that was That's good. awesome. That was awesome. Congrats. Well, thank you so yeah. much for joining yeah, us today. Guys, yeah. yeah. We'll look forward to having you back again, hopefully yeah, soon. Sure. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. You can also find us on Instagram at The Project Kuwait. Thank you, and join us next time.